but I know you internally joke that Ledger Enterprise is Ledger's best kept secret. So hopefully we can we can bring you into the into the spotlight. Okay, today on the Metaverse Show, we've got Alex Zinder, who's Global Head at Ledger Enterprise. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Jamie. Really glad to be here. Firstly, I mean, I'm sure most people will be aware who Ledger is, what Ledger is, generally speaking, pitched as the gateway to securing, buying, and managing crypto safely. But I know you internally joke that Ledger Enterprise is Ledger's best kept secret. So hopefully we can we can bring you into the into the spotlight. I know you've got a very significant business over there, but perhaps Ledger's best known in a retail context. But of course, you're helping on board some pretty major enterprise. So we're going to get into, I guess, you know, why Ledger more generally is important, especially now, tail end of 2022. A lot of concern, FUD around the solvency of different platforms, you know, whether your your funds are safe. I mean, pretty much every major fund now, um, where it might have been perhaps almost unthinkable that they would have been doubted even six months ago. Now everybody's under scrutiny. I think it's just made everybody a lot more paranoid, put a lot more emphasis and focus on self-custody. But of course, there's been a whole backdrop around security more generally. And I think it's also going to be look good to kind of look forward into the different types of assets that are now being custodied beyond kind of just pure crypto and NFTs. I know NFTs a big, big growth area for you guys. But maybe let's just start at the top. Let's get to know you a little bit more in person. As I said, you're global head at Ledger Enterprise. And I know by background, you're an engineer. So maybe kind of give us a, a quick espresso shot of a few Alex's and, and how you ended up at Ledger. Sure, sure. It's uh, happy to do that. And it's been a pretty, pretty interesting ride so far. So I've been a techie uh, most of my life, most of my career. I started coding when I was a teenager. I got my first professional job when I was 17 years old. And that was right at the at the beginning of what we now call the dot-com bubble. So I was lucky enough to enter into the job market during that turbulent time. I rode the bubble, so to speak. I had uh, you know several jobs, particularly building web-based applications. I'm more in the financial services and the trading industry. You know, the online brokerages were, were very hot during that time frame, not necessarily dissimilar from how hot centralized crypto exchanges are today and were yesterday. So, you know, that was a really interesting starting point to a career in, in engineering. And then from there, I've, I've done primarily a web development for, for a couple of years. The bubble, as we well know, it burst. But uh, during that time, I experienced the full kind of ride. We're about to go public at one of the companies I was working with. We grew rapidly. And then I was one of the last people to leave through the door as we were liquidating some of our assets. After that, um, I was lucky enough to uh, to find an opportunity with Nasdaq, and I spent majority of my career on the innovation side of traditional finance, which is quite interesting, right? Because you're kind of from the outside looking in to the you know to the crypto universe, to decentralization, to you know distributed platforms as they were coming during that time frame. And we had a you know extremely interesting experience. I you know I sat on the investment board there, made some interesting investment decisions in the crypto space. I was working within the general financial and capital markets ecosystem. And then later in my career, after ten years of doing that, uh, decided that it was probably time to take a perspective from the other side and actually join the movement itself and, and see how we can how we can convert, evangelize 
but really start to play in the crypto native space. I ran my own advisory practice in that regard for a certain period of time. I decided that it was also time to leave New York and experience Europe for a little bit. I moved to Zurich, which was quite an interesting experience, both personally and professionally. That was a, it was a good decompression chamber for two and a half years. And then after that, decided that it was really time to, to join the crypto native movement and the opportunity at Ledger presented itself. And I never looked back since then. Great. So maybe just to try to give some understanding of the scale of Ledger, actually, I we were chatting offline. I, for some reason, wasn't aware that you were primarily a French-based company, Parisian-based company, and you produce your hardware devices in France. I, I would have never assumed the latter, even if I knew the former. So that's really interesting. Maybe we can get into that. And I know the French ecosystem generally is, is very hot now albeit quite centered around Station F. But uh, Ledger Enterprise is valued at, or was valued at 1.5 billion, relatively recently raised 380 million in a Series C funding back in June 21. Could you just give us some example of the, the scale of the business? I know generally there's hardware, software, and firmware, and then maybe we can get into Ledger Enterprise, but maybe just a, a high level on Ledger itself. Yeah, of course. So, so I think from a, from a scale perspective, we're approaching or close to 800 people now staff. We're a global organization. As you mentioned, we're primarily headquartered in Paris, France. This is where the company was started. This is where the kind of the, the, the genesis moment happened and the, the, the hardware was envisioned. And, and as you can imagine, France has a very strong heritage in security. A lot of the traditional GSM capabilities, hardware security modules, and, and different types of cryptography actually came out of French research and a lot of French companies. So that that makes sense from a kind of a, from a historical perspective. But Ledger now is very much a global company. You know, we have people at the comics level that are from from the U.S. in different areas. We now have strong presence both in the U.S., in London, and in Singapore. And for Ledger Enterprise, more specifically, we're actively building out a global support model, right? Because we have clients everywhere. And of course, as we well know, crypto doesn't sleep. So we have to both create a follow the sun support model for our retail customers as Ledger itself. And we have to provide that same level of support to our clients have, who have crypto customers of their own. Right. And so some, some examples of those, Ledger Enterprise works with uh, companies like Crypto.com, Bitstamp, Uphold, Legacy Trust, Endax. And I think on the retail side, sold over 5 million wallets and are targeting 100x, 500 million. I don't know what time frame, but big, big ambitious goals and, and no reason to doubt you there. Absolutely, yeah. Very quickly approaching six million on the on the device side. I think you know self custody has always been at the core of the of the vision of the company itself, right? There were really two hypotheses made eight years ago when Ledger was founded. One was that the primary promises of crypto, self custody, and and basically censorship resistance of the networks themselves were critical to the the scale and the adoption of, of crypto as a, as a concept. And as a result, there was a deep analysis done on the security of the current ecosystem, right? Of like, what are the current tools that we have? And are they in fact able to support the, the promise of crypto? And are they able to support value exchange? And the hypothesis made at that time that our phones, our laptops, our browsers are not sufficiently secure, as we've known with, with many data leaks and, and other hacks that have been happening in the Web2 ecosystem, right? Like that's information that was being stolen. With crypto, the risk is that actual value is going to be stolen, right? And your, you know, your iPhone and your laptop are not sufficiently secured and have not been designed 
to to store and manage your interactions with actual value, which is what in fact you're doing when you're doing crypto-based transactions. So the the team and the founders basically envisioned a model where you needed a, a companion device, right? That was a secure end-to-end hardware device that did two things, very simple. One is it helps you secure your keys, right? Your private key material that had to be done offline on, on a secure card. It's, you know, it's a technology that, that gets leveraged for that using smart card capabilities and proprietary firmware. And then the second thing that it needed to do is when you sign something and interact with the crypto ecosystem, it needed a secure screen that showed you exactly what it was that you were doing, right? Because majority of the attacks that we were seeing weren't actually people stealing your keys. It was more social engineering, manipulation, man in the middle attacks, phishing attacks of people scheming and making people sign things that they weren't actually signing. So unless you can actually see it on a secure device, you can't really trust what your browser is telling you at any given point in time. So those were the two really attack vectors that were solved for. And uh, as we've seen, that has been hugely successful and adapted widely with 6 million devices and continuing to grow in that regard. I think the industry is really starting to understand the promise of self-custody, which is a foundational principle of crypto. It's not something that we invented. It's been out there for you know, since, since basically the, the genesis of the concept, we're just there to, to support it and to create the right tools that empower people, empower individuals to be able to do self-custody and do that effectively, securely, and in a way that's scalable. So that's the, the foundational elements of Ledger as a, as a retail, a security, and a self-custody offering, all kind of encapsulated into one package. And then on the Ledger Enterprise side, we kicked off that business about five years ago, so a little bit later. But the simple realization was that in order for the ecosystem to develop, right, so we're out there creating and promoting a large self-custody user base that wants to participate in the crypto ecosystem and do all these amazing things and execute these use cases. The challenge is that a lot of the businesses and companies that wanted to provide value to that user don't have the tools and the capabilities to do that securely, effectively, and at scale, right? So we were developing a user base, but that user base needs product, right? They, they need use cases, they need experiences, they need assets. So it became very quickly apparent that we needed to also create a solution or a set of tools for other businesses to do exactly what we were doing as Ledger, is to service that self-custody audience to deliver product and to do that so that, you know, we would be able to raise the attractability and the adoption of the entire ecosystem end to end. So maybe we kind of go go back to the top, as you say, this kind of fundamental foundational principle of crypto, which is self-sovereignty, the sovereignty of wealth, and therefore ultimately the kind of self-custody. Now, the reality is the majority of people don't self-custody. They rely upon a central intermediary or at least they did you know maybe 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 that will be a fundamental change or i don't know perhaps is this cycles right where all of a sudden that, that comes back into focus do you think people are fundamentally able to handle the cost of sovereignty the kind of overhead of sovereignty the mental overhead of sovereignty and the risks associated. Is that for everybody? Do you believe ultimately? Or do you think that, as you say, it, it might be that there'll need to be some intermediary party, but that they can enable some form of scalable and self-custody and sovereignty? 
Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this one as a technologist, and I, and I like to kind of address it in, in realities, right? Because there are certain things that we already know, which could provide clarity into that question. So I I, I don't mean to sound facetious, but the I think the real answer is that it fundamentally doesn't matter whether you're going to get 100% adoption from the entire populace to be aware enough and educated enough to be able to do self-custody, right? I think the bigger shift and the bigger awareness in that moment of realization was that self-custody is now possible, right? And as we continue to see events where um, there's been issues with centralized exchanges like FTX, there's been multiple hacks of concentrations of risk and concentrations of value, right? Like these things are reality. The user base is continuing to be educated about the realities, but now they're in a position to make a decision whether or not they want to invest their own time, effort, and in some cases, some money to be able to effectively do self-custody, right? So they have a choice and it is our place and our responsibility to give them that choice. And that in itself creates a, a power shift, right? Because if you wanted to live somewhere, and have a job and be able to buy things as recent as five years ago, you had absolutely no other option than opening a bank account, right? Like you could have a cash only job, but frankly, your provider for work is going to make you open a bank account, right? Because they need it for tax reasons, they need it for other aspects. So it almost became a, an improbability of you in the economy without delegating your custody and delegating your assets to a third party, which is a, a regulated and, and legal banking entity. Now there is optionality. You as an individual can make a choice to function basically fundamentally on crypto and, you know, and Ledger and others have the services that we provide today to be able to empower that. We have the credit card, we have direct deposit capabilities, we have, you know, direct conversions. Yes, in some cases, you might still need a bridge into fiat for certain capabilities, but that's being whittled away slowly and, and, and surely. So you have the optionality. Now, what, what does that do, right? That puts the bank in a position where they now have to question you as a long-term client and they really have to understand how do they, you know, not compete amongst themselves, but also compete against a completely different ecosystem that's evolving and developing, or how do they participate in that ecosystem? So, you know, I can't really foretell exactly how this thing is going to go on the retail side with adoption. I think the trends are looking great in the direction of self-custody. And I think fundamentally, right, if we feel strongly that crypto is going to continue to gain adoption and continue to grow and flourish, I think it's going to be fundamentally because of that self-sovereignty promise because of freedom of mobility. Also, as somebody that just moved from in the course of four years from New York to Zurich, Switzerland, to now Paris, France, I can tell you firsthand that process of moving around and opening different bank accounts. And I still kept my Swiss ones, but it's, it's, it's a huge pain in the ass, right? It's not an easy feat to be able to manage that. Where with crypto, it's in my pocket, it comes with me. And no matter where I am in the world, I can use it. Right. So there's also that globalization aspect, which I think adds another dimension to this as we as we progress and the ecosystem continues to develop. So I'm bullish on adoption of self-custody and self-sovereignty on extending that. I think it is our job as a community, as, a, as an ecosystem and as ledger to make self-custody as easy as possible. I think it's also important to highlight that we don't want to make it completely frictionless. Right, because with that comes carelessness. And with carelessness, we all know what can happen, right? There needs to be a threshold, right? Like you need to make a commitment to self custody. It is a serious thing, right? If you're going to have serious assets and you're going to manage them yourselves, you need to know what you're doing. Um, 
And then you will always have the optionality. If you choose to delegate that to somebody else, they will be there to win your business. Uh, there'll be a clear cost associated with it, and there'll be a clear set of services that they will provide to you as an individual, and you can choose what are the things that you want to self-custody and what are the things where it's easier for you to delegate that capability, right? So, but it's going to be a shift in the market. It's going to be a different decision-making process. Yeah, I mean, I like that. It's kind of unbundling, firstly, what is a bank and banking services, and then it's flipping it on its head where effectively, as you say, you can delegate. It's down to the user to delegate, you know, based upon, I guess, asset, value of asset and, and various other factors. I mean, I guess ultimately this lives or dies on on the word you used back at the beginning around scalability, but also the social component, because as you said, most attacks are social attacks. And yet, you know, really, I guess the the thing that makes this scale or become more applicable, certainly on an individual level is, well, I have a family, you know, you know, what if I pass away? How do I make sure my my wealth is transferable, is accessible? you know, to, to my family and everything else that goes with it. So, you know, how do we think of sovereignty in the context of life? You know, just just all the stuff that comes at you in life. How do we how do we have it scale in a social sense without necessarily also dramatically increasing the attack vectors? That's a great question. The way I usually like to unbundle this is we think about three kind of important factors that you all mentioned. One is the sovereignty of the individual and how far do you need to and want to go with that, right? Because there's limitations to the individual, as we know, in societies and, and cultures, right? The individual only goes so far. So over-investing in self-sovereignty of the individual also comes with a set of pain points. And then uh, scalability, as you mentioned, and security. And then on top of that, right, where you start to hit up against the limitations of self-sovereignty and the limitations of the individual, what are the services that go on top of that and how do you think about it? When we think about security and scalability, we generally talk about three factors which are critical to understand as they apply to crypto. One is scale of value. Obvious, that one is pretty straightforward, right? You know, we, we've seen an exponential growth in value in the crypto ecosystem over the last five years, which has been great and healthy. And even with the recent market downturn, we're still exponential and growing exponentially in that regard. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the more value you accumulate in a certain community, in a certain environment, the more malicious actors you're going to attract and the more sophisticated they're going to be, right? So security isn't a static thing. It's a constantly moving target. And scale of value as the ecosystem System continues to be more successful and grow, which we all want, is going to increase, and the malicious actors and their sophistication is going to increase. So that has to, you know, have a certain level of vigilance associated with it, and the specific level of investment, just like we've seen with with everything with everything else. The second factor of scalability that we talk about is the scale of complexity. And just as we've seen an exponential growth in value, we've started to see an exponential growth in complexity. We now have more layer ones than we've ever had. We kind of started with, you know, we need to build the right tools to protect your Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? Like, and, and do that securely, protect your private keys, and, and then everything is good. And then we very quickly realized, well, no, not everything is good because now you have new layer ones, you have bridges that open up new attack vectors, you have interoperability between networks, you have DeFi, you have smart contracts, and all of these are opportunities for an attacker or a malicious actor to engineer something where they can extract value right, from, from good actors. So that level of complexity is another dimension, which is a very challenging thing to solve for. And the way we look at it at Ledger is what we really need to bring to the equation 
isn't just security. It's security at the edges. And actually, you know, the, the genesis, the reason there was a screen that was put on the device and the reason the device was created in such a way where everybody could have it in their pocket, because that was the original hypothesis, is that security is going to have to be distributed. It's going to have to be at the edges, which is different than the traditional models of putting security controls in the perimeter of the organization that's managing your assets, right? The, the heavy walls, the plated glass, uh, and, and the guards in front of the door. And then the last dimension is a scale of operations, right? And that's really the investment that we make inside of enterprise and that we work with our partners to be able to support the ecosystem 24-7. Crypto doesn't, doesn't sleep. And then also managing the operating models of these institutions to help them scale and bring value to these audiences on a completely different cycle, right? So the, the, the day of the banking hours is gone, right? That's non-existent in our world anymore. However, most of these organizations still function on these premises. And if you look at trading and how that happens, still, right, like they're still clearing cycles, you know, and as long as you're going to have fiat, you're going to have that level of complexity. But the opportunity is there. It's 24-7 liquid markets, right, for all of these types of services. Then as you start to focus towards retail and uh, the global demand and the just-in-time approach of the next generation of users, right, those are going to be critical things. So, the you know to you know take a step back and kind of synthesize more specifically for your question is it is it is hugely important to empower the individual with security and self-sovereignty and self-custody and that's fundamentally what we do right and that's our our bet in this space but it is also important for us to understand and one of the direct takeaways from an event like FTX is that there is a limitation for how much you want to empower an individual, especially if they start to manage other people's and especially if they're starting to work in a company setting where they need to scale their operations, right? The nano with one single passphrase, one single pin code, one user and one machine doesn't work anymore, right? If you're managing other people's money and you're working in a team, you need governance. You need a flexible layer that allows you to do business processes. You need reporting. You need compliance. You need all of those things that we know about because we know how to run businesses and companies. But we still, for some reason, hesitated to apply them in the world of crypto. And uh, that's also been a very healthy transition to really see that, look, there is a limitation to empowerment. You want to empower the individual in their retail and day-to-day -day life as an individual. But when they come to work, and they're running a crypto operation or a crypto business, they need to be able to have the tools required to do that productively, right? And safely and securely and with governance. And if you're mirroring those two things together, then you have a viable end-to-end -end scalable solution for the ecosystem as a whole to grow. And then you can have optionality, right? Where I, as a user, get to choose self-custody in certain scenarios and still sleep at night if I decided to delegate some of that capability to a third party because I know what questions I need to ask them. I know they're using the right tools, the right technology, and the right security to properly manage my assets, right? Or properly manage my seed phrase or whatever it is that I decided to delegate to them. And so what extent are you differentiating at a product or service level between, say, a DAO, which has its own form of governance, you know, hypothetically on chain, of course, a lot of it's, you know, in Discord servers versus, say, a, you know, regulated financial institution handling, you know, clients' funds? That's a great question. I, th I think the fundamental distinction there comes into, do you have people day to day that are managing operations that 
impact the movement of other people's assets. Theoretically, within a DAO, that's all managed through a smart contract, so it's fully automated. However, we all know that in most DAOs today, there's still quite a bit of manual intervention and processes and manual engagement right, that needs to happen because you can't possibly account for everything. Again, as an engineer, I know that you will never write a program that accommodates every single fail-safe situation and scenario, so you need to have opportunities for manual intervention. Right. And that will continue to be the case, I think, for a very long period of time, especially as the complexity dimension continues to scale. Right. You can't write code that predicts the future. Uh, only people can do that. Or you need to write code that can change. Right. So it really kind of shifts on what it is that you're governing. And only for me, I'm oversimplifying things as a, as a technologist. It just has to do with the curve of how much have you automated away? Right. But the challenge is you're not getting rid of governance as you you're simply shifting the governments from actual human processes, human managed processes and human intervention in more traditional models to code management and code governance and code based controls in the more evolved Web3 fully automated smart contract models, because you need to know who touched your smart contract when. Did they have the right permissions, right? So standard code management controls go out the window when your smart contract is managing 10 billion in assets, right? So you're just shifting that really. And we offer services that do, that do both, right? You can have governance of wallets with multi-approver models based on a variety of different rule sets that have to do with whitelists and thresholds of value for each transaction, periods in time, you know, different types of rules. And we manage smart contracts with clear governance and visibility as to who can touch the smart contract when at which point and what are the controls that are securing the, the keys that the smart contract is associated with. So I know a lot of people will be kind of thinking of this, you know, that we've got somebody like you on the show, we should really be making the most of trying to inform people around what are the most kind of common uh, or, or, or recurring forms of security breaches, hacks that they should be aware of both as an individual or somebody working within an enterprise setting, you know, trying to safely manage people's funds in crypto? These are great questions. I wish I actually had a very clear and succinct answer to that. But to be completely transparent, you know, the variability is very high. You know, I, I think for me, it really comes down to two, two pieces. You know, think really about security at the edges, what it is that you're fundamentally protecting. Right. And the position that we have taken at Ledger through our years of experience in this crypto native ecosystem is that you really want to have well-educated and well-trained people. So invest in education first and foremost with the right tools available to them at the point of when and where they're making the decision with a certain level of security associated with that decision-making process, which means secure device in their hand with a secure dis display to be able to validate and triage the information that's coming at them from another source, right? And that really has been, has been critical. So what you see is what you sign will remove the majority of possibilities of a man in the middle attack, whether that be phishing, social engineering, payload manipulation or, in, or interception, right? All the common things that people can do to alter the transaction before you signed it. What's payload intervention? I, I knew the other two, but I, d I don't know that one. If you make a, a request to go watch your podcast, for example, on your browser, 
right? There is a, there's a dialogue that happens between the browser and the server in that regard where the browser makes a certain request and that request is structured as a payload. It's a message, right, that your browser sends to the server to say, I need this URL with this asset associated with it and that opens up the video stream and the browser behaves in the right way. That payload goes through multiple touch points on its route. It hits, goes from your laptop, to your NIC card on the network, it goes through the Wi-Fi, it goes and enters the web, it bounces around quite a bit, then it hits a router or a load balancer and so on and so forth until it actually reaches the server where the streaming content sits. And then the whole thing is tied together to deliver to you the streaming content. At any point in those jumps that your message goes through, in order to make the request for the asset that you requested for, and this is just an informational asset, you know, I think your podcasts have a lot of value, but not in that form because it's not, you know, it's not a unique. I can go and get it somewhere else. Um, it's not non-fungible, so to speak. The An attacker, a malicious actor could manipulate that payload at any point in that transaction, right? To be able to basically instruct the server that would be returning something to return either something completely different or execute some kind of malicious action that you as a user initiated thinking that you're doing something very specific as requesting a streaming link to a podcast that you wanted to watch. And as a result, something else happens that maybe impacts your credit card transaction or sends your cookies to a malicious website, right? Or redirects your experience somewhere else that looks like the right website, but actually is a, is a model for capturing data points, right? Now, now that's all fun and games, right? In the world of Web2, where the worst thing that can happen is uh, you lose some data or uh, somebody processes a malicious credit card transaction, which you can call your credit card and then rewind, right? As we all know, and we've seen that happen before. It could be extremely impactful and detrimental in the world of Web3, as we have seen, because it could cause for somebody to just wipe out your entire wallet, yeah. right? Because they know who you are and they know your wallet. They can manipulate that payload and they can make it do things that you don't want it to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that kind of irreversibility of transaction, you know, is is a feature. But of course, you know, there are there are some stable coins, for example, where transactions can be frozen. And, and this opens up a whole debate, right? Because safety on the one hand is understandable, you know, if you're coming at it from a Web two context or a regulator's context, or or you're a entity and and you you maybe have liability. You want to you might want to say, well, I want to make things safer for you. So by making things safer, the ledger can be frozen. Effectively, transactions can be revoked. You know what what direction do you think that takes us in? Do you think that is a is that a dangerous detour from the mission of, of, of Web3 and crypto? Super interesting question and one that we can talk to at length, I think. You know, uh, it's, it's an interesting directional thing, right? So uh, I think censorship resistance, right, is a, with tremendous opportunity and very strong, you know, socioeconomic impact. But at the same time, in some ways, it's a curse, Right, because it really increases the the security threshold required to participate in this in this ecosystem. So the barrier to adoption needs to be raised by default. Right. And if you start to chip away at censorship resistance, right, by providing these additional layers of capabilities that enable 
somebody for some reason to make a decision that you needed to freeze assets on the entire network, which means nobody can access their money for a certain period of time, it starts to become dodgy at best, right? Like, so who's controlling it? Is it all programmatic or is somebody pushing a button, right? Like, you really need to start asking the hard questions of why some of these backstops exist and how will they get leveraged? The the real kind of sneaky avoidance answer in that regard that I'll give you is that any system, as, as an architect will always tell you, any system is just a combination of trade-offs. The best we can do is find the right, you know, the right combo of these types of trade-offs at any given point in time, given the current circumstances of the world that we live in today. And the world, as we know, it changes really drastically. So systems need to be designed more now than ever for agility and adoption. And I think we'll have, you know, the industry will progress, right? I think that's why we kind of have these distributed decision-making models, right? Like we have the developer communities around these layer ones. And I was personally kind of blown away just to give you a little anecdotal reference. I, I first invested heavily into Bitcoin when I was on the flight back from from Quebec after I think it was the second scaling Bitcoin conference, I think it's 2014. And I saw the ecosystem come together and make some really hard decisions at that point in time as to the future of Bitcoin, the scalability factors and how certain things were going to come together. And I, you know, I participated in that event. I was with NASDAQ at the time. So I was the corporate guy in the room, you know, trying to digest it all and, and, and figure it out. But to me, it was a you know it was a community of engineers, brilliant brilliant minds and people that had no corporate or financial incentives really kind of organizing. There's no organizing entity. It was all self organization, but that made it work right. That fundamentally made them steer towards the right decisions and create their own governance models as to how these things function. So that to me was like the early foundation of the DAO. They just agreed to do it that way amongst themselves, and that's how it progressed. So I think we, we need we need more of that, and we need more of those governing bodies that have the general best interest of the community in in mind, and then we'll see the right the right progression. I mean, I guess the challenge is, in some ways, those early days were kind of an Eden. The, the fi- there's 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 so much financial interest in this now. The stakes are so big; it's almost impossible not totally possible but almost impossible to not have interests at the table but i look i think you know the 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 answer is in a few of the things you said earlier the first one is optionality all of this stuff generally speaking is open source there will be any number of variants configurations in a marketplace of solutions there will be some that make certain design choices where things could be frozen or certain trade-offs that will give a benefit right you know maybe these things are accepted more widely and, and on on more exchanges on more devices ultimately cbdc's are a version of that and presumably will give the highest level of security but also bring the highest level of risk in in terms of censorship and and seizure and the user can choose right to depending on where they're sat in the world but uh, if they're lucky enough to be able to be mobile then they can achieve full sovereignty and and elect a jurisdiction where they have the greatest degree of optionality i guess Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'll reserve the right to be simple-minded enough to also throw in there the fact I think technology is also going to drive a lot of that momentum. And you know, we're seeing highest rates of technical development that we've ever seen, and that's going to continue to grow. I think you know, anybody that forecasts otherwise probably would be incorrect based on history. So we will very quickly find ourselves in situations where scalability of 
pre-trade risk management versus the traditional post-trade model, which we're very much used to in finance. And that's why your credit card can basically turn back any one of your transactions that were maliciously intended, right? But we're seeing a flip, like and basically what blockchain did with censorship resistance and instant settlement, right? And finality was flip the model. In traditional services, we would spend two to three days clearing, reconciling, and validating all the transactions before we actually move the assets. Yeah, that was done because we weren't sure, right? And we needed to be damn sure that when we're moving a couple million for the Microsoft stock that was traded, that's actually the right thing to do. And we needed to give enough time for people to, to do that type of an analysis. It's reconciliation, very standard. What we're doing with crypto is moving that from post-trade to pre-trade, right? So you better be damn well sure that when you send somebody crypto, you know exactly who they are, you know the right address, you know why you're doing it, and you know that they're not a malicious actor or part of a terrorist organization. And you better do that before you push the button, not after. And, uh, you know, as technology advances and we get more in machine intelligence and predictive analytics and these types of functions, I think we are going to get much better at pre-trade risk management. And that will start to smooth out all the pain that we're currently feeling with, you know, some of the things that come out of transaction finality and reversibility and through that censorship resistance. Yeah, well, I think you're probably like me as an optimist. If you kind of totally zoom out and you see this as one big game with the biggest incentive of all to get it right, which is money and, and control of money, then it's, it's the biggest bug bounty that's ever existed. And so... As a, as a system, that feels like it's going to deliver something really resilient, almost anti-fragile, dare I say it. So I, I like that. I will, I, will, I will challenge one aspect of that, right? Because for me, and this is kind of the, the, next, the next generation, and I actually think that you would probably fundamentally agree with this, is that you know, we're not necessarily talking about a new financial instrument here. Right or a new monetary system. I think it's it's actually bigger than that. And I like to kind of reference, and this is why I'm actually very excited about the current state of, of things in crypto, because we got a little overexcited with speculation. And you know, and then you kind of get all these questions all the time, like why aren't the banks entering this space? Like trading is so good. Like why aren't the banks coming in? Well, fundamentally because the banks are not there to trade. Like that's not their purpose in being. The purpose of the banks is to provide services to their clients. We kind of forget that banks have customers and their customers are the Fortune 100. There is a reason why in the top 10 Fortune 100 companies, there are no banks, right? These are retail focused conglomerates with global presences. You know, people like Microsoft, like Nike, like Salesforce, like others, right? These are not banks. Pretty of the largest banks globally make most of their money by providing services to these large global entities that have billions of users, right? And, and use cases that transact trillions of times a day in different areas. So for me, it really comes down to, you know, how does the internet of value, right, start to get utilized at scale, where somebody like Nike comes to their bank and says, look, guys, we're going to execute this, you know, this gated model for the next drop of Jordan's, we're going to do this on Polygon and we need a couple billion of Polygon to operationally execute this thing. So you guys figure that out for us. And then when our 500 Jordan users or you know retail owners, each one buy one of these passes to get access to the actual shoe when it comes out in three months, 
what do we do with all of that crypto, which is going to equal probably 100 billion in revenue? When they start to ask the bank these questions, like that's when the banks are going to be like, oh, like, holy shit, I need to learn how to trade Polygon, yeah. right? Because I need to provide liquidity to Nike. And then Microsoft is going to do the same thing with Ubisoft and build a digital account, right? Like these are the real, these are the real use cases to me. Like that's the real problem. And then, you know, the monetary aspect, it could be stable coins, it could be fiat, like that will get figured out. But the shift really is, you know, the retail audiences from an engagement perspective, are going to want value instead of information. Information is what they get today, and you ignore most of your emails that you get from all the different brands that you've accumulated over the years. But if they were sending you value every month, and it was real value, and it was well well thought out, I think the engagement factor really goes to another level. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, thinking in in terms of digital supply chains and and where many of these things, like Polygon or anything else, become the commodities that, that underpin them, that make them function. You know, how do you have stable pricing? For example, you know, nine 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 ninety nine a month. Well, you need futures markets for the commodities that underpin the supply chains and. You know, nobody's even begun scratching the surface on, on that whole thing. So you're absolutely right. That's definitely the bigger picture. And well, look, Alex, we've blown over in the normal time we do with this, which is great. Good sign. Great chatting to you. Thanks for coming on. Good luck in the new year. And thanks for being such a great guest. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I will take one one second to close the loop if you don't mind. But I think that point of that whole, the, the whole discussion, I think it, the, the use case for the retail audience, I think is huge. Right. And the ability to kind of shift the, the dialogue between the service provider and the consumer on the other side is also very, uh, uh, very significant. And if I were to uh, distill down to that, what we actually do with Ledger Enterprise, right, what we see as our job every day is to build the tools required for these major brands or for any businesses that want to engage the Web3 audience to do that efficiently at scale and with, with ease, right? So we're creating the self-custody audience with Ledger as a whole. And with Ledger Enterprise, we're empowering other businesses to be able to service that audience. That's great, Alex. Thanks for that. Super excited to see uh, what the next few years have entailed for you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 